Hello, my name is Barbara, and this is Neuroscience, Amateur Hour. How are you all doing? Hopefully having a good week, eating well, getting enough sleep, enough coffee, taking care of your brains and your bodies. I am currently trying to focus on getting enough sleep, so I am taking a break from alcohol. I'm trying to read more in the evening. Haven't been very successful in that one. Um, spending less time in front of a screen. Also haven't been very successful. Uh, kind of helped that I forgot my laptop at work yesterday and couldn't record the episode, but I just kind of ended up staying late in front of the TV. So this week's short-ish episode is all about speech production. I got a lovely email from a listener a little while back. That's Yuji. And uh, he was interested in learning a little bit more about language processing. I've decided to break up that rather huge topic into a couple different episodes, starting with how we actually form words and produce vocalizations. So if you think about it, speech is a fundamental way of communicating our needs, desires, threats, resources, etc. to our conspecifics. In many ways, you could argue that it's one of the building blocks of our civilizations, just because it's hard to imagine that we would be able to build the pyramids of Egypt or discover penicillin if we weren't able to communicate prior knowledge to each other. So how did speech evolve? If we look at some of the animals around us, they are capable of producing vocalizations that communicate basic needs and information. One well-understood and well-researched example is songbirds, who are capable of producing region-specific songs that they actually teach to their children. I remember this one experiment being touched on in class where they looked at the same species of birds along the California coast, and, ooh, that's my oven, I'm sorry, and these birds had were like singing the same song, but it had almost like dialects, like region-specific dialects based on where they were in California, which is pretty fucking cool. Uh, but they also teach these songs to their children. And these songs are meant to proclaim and defend territories or indicate the locations of nests or resources. There have been some really fascinating experiments where songbirds have been placed in isolation shortly after birth, and they end up producing a song that is raspy and inarticulate, indicating that listening to songs sung by other birds is necessary to producing proper vocalizations. Now, this kind of vocal learning is a whole different podcast topic because there is a huge body of research on the neural circuitry and the learning processes underlying this phenomenon in songbirds, fruit bats, and human beings. So watch out for that episode at a later date. If you want a sneak peek, check out the work of Eric Jarvis or Michael Brainerd. But yes, some animals are producing vocalizations that convey meaning to other members of their species. Gibbons will make calls to mark their territory to others, or sloths will literally scream when they are horny. There used to be this fantastic BuzzFeed video of a sloth called Buttercup emitting her mating call, um, which kind of just sounds like me when I spot a cockroach. It's like a very high-pitched scream. Um, and I'm devastated to say that it's been taken down and I can't find it. But if a miracle occurs and I find it, I'm going to link it in the show notes. Our human ancestors were also capable of producing these vocalizations, and over time, we began to be able to control them more precisely. Although when this happened in history is hotly debated. 
It's actually thought that human language may have evolved to help our ancestors make tools like stone axes and the like. So how do we technically produce speech with our tongues and our lips and our larynxes? So after we've developed thoughts that we want to turn into words, we expel air from our lungs. Our vocal cords, which are situated in the larynx, vibrate, collide with each other, and stretch to form a range of sounds. That sound is further refined by the movement of our tongues and lips. If you try to emit a tone and then alter the way that your lips are shaped or whether your tongue is in the upper part of your mouth or the lower part, you can hear the differences in sound that you can produce. The larynx is in turn controlled by the laryngeal muscles, which can either be intrinsic or confined to the larynx, or extrinsic, so attaching to the larynx to other structures within the head and neck. And different muscles are important in opening and closing the larynx versus moving the larynx up and down in the neck to change pitch. Now, this will hopefully make sense, but we're going to go backwards in the brain to understand the relevant brain regions that are responsible for physically producing speech. So, one step back, we have the nucleus ambiguous. Yep, named ambiguous because I'm pretty sure it's hard to find and define across different species. I am hilariously well-versed with this brain region because I spent four years, straight up four years, tracing cells here. I could find this thing in my sleep, and I know that doesn't make sense, but I don't really care. (laughs) So the nucleus ambiguous is located in the brainstem, and it contains the cell bodies of motor neurons that innervate the laryngeal muscles, as well as a bunch of other muscles that innervate the pharynx, the upper esophagus, and the soft palate all very important muscles and body parts that control how you swallow and how you speak. Cool. Okay, so we found the neurons that actually affect laryngeal muscles. But where does the command function come from? What brain region says, okay, and go? So two steps back. Turns out that it's the motor cortex, specifically a subset called the laryngeal motor cortex. The motor cortex is a part of our brain that's responsible for planning, controlling, and executing voluntary movements, and it makes complete sense that a specific subregion is involved in controlling the larynx. We found our command signal. Now, there's some debate as to whether it's as straightforward as I've made it out to be. It's thought that in some species, including human beings and Egyptian fruit bats, that there's this direct monosynaptic connection between the laryngeal motor cortex and the nucleus ambiguous, whereas in other primates and animals, there's thought to be an indirect connection, aka the laryngeal motor cortex projects to another area, some part of the reticular formation, before connecting onto the nucleus ambiguous. This unique monosynaptic connection could be an explanation as to how human beings evolved a unique ability to learn and produce speech compared to other primates. And this does fall in line with findings that show that stimulating the laryngeal motor cortex elicits vocalizations in humans, but not in primates. This direct connection would allow humans to precisely control complex learned laryngeal movements that could underlie what we understand as the spoken word. The fact that humans likely have this connection and primates lack it could also mean that this connection evolved in the last few million years and is a factor that made speech evolution possible. So yes, this monosynaptic connection is a possible pathway by which we physically produce speech. But there are other motor nuclei and circuits involved that control breathing and other orofacial movements. So this is a very simplified, kind of one-dimensional look at a highly complex motor act. But it does give us an understanding of the basics. 
but I do also want to talk about one of the higher level brain regions involved in generating speech as well. The star of every conversation about speech is Broca's area, otherwise known as the motor speech area. It's located just below the motor cortex in the frontal lobe of the normally left hemisphere, and it's known to be responsible for some component of speech production. How do we know this? We have to thank a man named Broca, uh, for which the brain region is named. So in 1861, our favorite young physician, Paul Pierre Broca, admitted a patient, Louis Victor Leborn. It's French, Leborn. Le I'm going to go with Leborn. Uh, to the surgical unit at his hospital. Leborn had come in with a severe leg infection that had become gangrenous, and it was unlikely that the patient would survive. But Leborn was a fascinating patient for Braca because he suffered from a completely different disorder than his gangrenous leg. He had something that would come to be called aphasia, and it meant that the man had great difficulty producing understandable language. In fact, the only word he could reliably generate was tan, which he would frustratedly repeat when he wanted to communicate. Tan, 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 tan. Thus, after Leborn unfortunately passed away, Braca quickly performed an autopsy and removed the brain. There, he found a crater in the left frontal lobe the size of a chicken egg. Now, this combination of a frontal lobe lesion and the loss of speech production led to Braca recognizing that it was likely that this brain region was specialized to that specific function. At the time, it was a major scientific question as to whether the brain had specific localizations of function or whether it all just worked together somehow. Braca continued his observations in other patients with speech deficits and consistently observed that deficits in speech production often corresponded to frontal lobe damage, specifically on the left side, supporting the idea of localization of function. Braca's discovery was revolutionary, and the brain region was correspondingly named after him. But it's important to understand the that the precise role of Braca's area in language production is still not very well understood. We know that damage disrupts language production, but we don't know exactly what specific language-related function is lost. Some scientists believe that it's part of the motor circuit involved in physically producing speech, and it likely ties in somehow to that laryngeal motor cortex question mark, but it could also be involved in verbal working memory, syntax, grammar formation, or all of the above all at the same time. Everything Everywhere All at Once, which is a fantastic movie. You should go see it. I still dream about it. Uh, Braca's area is also thought to play a role in language comprehension, not just production, along with something called Wernicke's area in the posterior superior temporal lobe, which was discovered just a few years after Braca's area. The two are connected via a neural pathway, and I will chat more about that brain region in a future episode. Cliffhanger. But that is a bite-sized look at the neuroscience of speech production. This is kind of part one in a series about the neuroscience of language and speech production and processing and grammar and all that good stuff. And I will talk about all those things, vocal learning, grammar, comprehension, speech disorders in a future episode. But I hope that you enjoy the episode and that you learn something new. I've cited all my relevant sources and papers in the show notes, and you should keep an eye out on Instagram for some cool figures that I think are pertinent. Please rate, review, and subscribe, and if you have any questions, comments, concerns, queries, or complaints, please email me at neuroscienceamateurhour at gmail.com 
or DM me at Neuroscience Amateur Hour on Instagram. This podcast is available on pretty much any platform I can think of, so please recommend it to your friends and loved ones. Also, if you have something you really want to learn about, please contact me, and you'll probably see an episode about it soon. Happy researching, and I hope to see you again.